Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the podcast segment of our show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for the 451st show is Leo Landis, curator of the State Historical Society of Iowa, who will be talking with us about Iowa and the great influential <laughs> pandemic of 1918 to 1920. Our history buffs are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. Leo, I have a question first I'd like to ask you. Uh, during the uh, pandemic, uh, the, the uh, influential pandemic, it was pretty much, they were overlooked, but I know this is a shocker, but many of the Native American tribes throughout our nation just got mowed down uh, because, for one, they were a lot of individuals uh, being on reservations. They were malnourished. They didn't have proper medical um uh, procedures or uh, help. Uh, was there any record of uh, any Native American reservations in Iowa getting hit really hard by the influenza pandemic? Yeah, I think the first thing to remind ourselves is we really don't have any reservations in Iowa. The Meskwaki settlement, they've always owned that land since right. 1857. True, true, true. So, yeah, yeah, no, and I'm not meaning to call you out on that. I think it's just always important to remind ourselves of that. Uh, the Winnebago, our Ho-Chunk people have some land in uh, Iowa, but really their reservations on the Nebraska side, if I remember right. So, Thank you for clarifying. No, that's all good. And and so I think to talk about the Meskwaki, though, is a, a really important story. There were Meskwaki men serving in the U.S. Army. We've got photos of some of the men, uh, whereas a number of and in fact we had about 4000 Iowans in military service who died during the war and and we count nurses on the Iowa side it's like 3750 uh if you just talk about uh men who die and when you start counting in nurses and other uh, connected people past the date of armistice, our number, so men serving in France who die in maybe January of 1919 after armistice, we counted those two in the State Historical Society number. That's how it gets to 4,000. No Meskwaki men serving in the military die, uh, so I know that to be the case. Uh, so that's uh, encouraging. And because the Meskwaki had dealt with, and I think it, it was a smallpox epidemic uh, in the late 1880s, 18, early 1890s. I know there was a, a, a disease outbreak at the settlement in the late 1800s. Uh, their population had, had diminished a little bit from uh, the 1880s. And in, in the case of the Meskwaki, they were still pretty isolated, and, and many of them were living in their lodges, in traditional lodges, as opposed to frame homes. And, and I'm not meaning to, you know, stereotype their living style. It's just where they uh, were retaining much of their original culture. So in that, pre, that 1918 period, some were living in frame houses, but there were still a number of Meskwaki still living in uh, wiki-ups. And so uh, you had... Uh, a population that wasn't mixing with the outside population. So uh, my basic knowledge of the, how the Meskwaki fared, I 
wouldn't be surprised if some Meskwaki died, but it didn't seem. I, I, I've looked at the Marshalltown papers, which covers the you know Tama County area a little bit too, and I don't remember seeing anything in my research talking about uh, influenza outbreak on the Meskwaki settlement. And, and the Meskwaki, of course, were very careful uh, through this uh, pandemic too. I know. Okay, Brett. So you talked a little bit um, on the radio show about uh, how churches were affected, and we've seen in the current pandemic that some churches are very supportive of mitigation efforts and some are very resistant to them. Did you have that same dynamic uh, with influenza? Not that I'm aware of, and I think the uh, thing to keep in mind in Iowa's religious traditions and uh, really you look at the Protestant faiths in our state in that pre-1970 era, uh, the Methodist or what was then the Methodist Episcopal Church and today is you know part of the United Methodist Church. Uh, that was the number one Protestant church. Uh, we had a lot of Catholics and still have a lot of Roman Catholics in our state and, and of course Congregational and Baptist as well. Lutherans of course don't want to overlook Lutherans. Uh, there was pretty much uniformity I think in adhering to the health dictates of the local agencies and from what I've seen uh, from local agencies and from that period when the state put in its uh, requirements. And so you don't see that so much. What was the issue in that period related to religion that was a big issue was that Governor Harding in May of 1918 had issued the English-only proclamation. And so we still had, you know, almost one in 10 Iowans were foreign-born in that period. So uh, a lot of you know, Lutherans who were speaking Danish or Swedish uh, weren't allowed to use their, their language at that time because Governor Harding doesn't repeal that uh, executive order until December of 1918. So that's the religious issue uh, in Iowa. And the, the Danes are especially upset. And this will, you know, make sense to uh, Scott County people, where you've got a huge German population as well, uh, that the you know anti-germanism was manifested in such a way to say well we'll not pick on just the people who are speaking german we'll pick on all people speaking foreign languages and so that english only proclamation was really the religious issue of that 1918 period terry yeah leo i'd like to talk a little bit more about the deadly nature of the flu or influenza we talked about perhaps the origin of it was uh, soldiers coming back from World War One and bringing it to the different military camps and then it's spreading out from there. Yet, I wonder, I mean, we've, having done some genealogy on my own family history, I noticed that my great-grandmother died in December of 1915 in Nebraska, and it was listed as influenza. Um, and the obituary was very clear that it was a very fast-moving illness. I mean, by the time she became sick, she was gone in three days, and she was rather young. So I wonder, was there were pockets of influenza already in our country, and that perhaps it was exasperated by having large groups of people in certain areas spreading it? What I think makes the 1918 uh, 
pandemic worse than the previous ones. And of course, just like today, people die of influenza and sometimes it affects uh, some younger people. And that's why it's always a good idea, in, in my opinion, to get uh, a flu shot. I usually get one. Uh, is that a strain may affect someone else's physiology different. So it probably wasn't an H1N1 strain that killed your ancestor, uh, it, but it's still a virulent strain that can affect people. And so that's why we have people die of influenza and why, you know, President Trump was thinking maybe uh, this wouldn't be uh, so bad come warm weather. Uh, and, and it wasn't because we were outdoors more in the summer of 2020. But that, uh, you know, coronavirus didn't doesn't quite act like uh Influenza, and so that every disease or every strain of uh, a coronavirus, uh, you know, a COVID two, uh, will affect you a little bit different than a common cold will. So, and and populations develop a resistance, and maybe your ancestor didn't have that resistance. So, there have always been strains that will affect people, and to know exactly in each instance the way human physiology differs from each individual. Uh, you know, it, it really is that H1N1 of 1918 that, that came in in the spring and, and spread in the fall that is just so devastating. Um, a question when we're talking about those who were who died from it. Uh, my wife's uh, grandfather, he was a doughboy and he was married before he met, uh, married my uh, wife's grandmother. And his wife died during this time period remarkably fast no family member, they don't know her name. They don't know how she died. And, and all they ever got out of it uh, from discussion was that my fa uh, father-in-law's older sister said it was very quick and it, it, it crushed him. And so it, I was thinking, I, I have no proof, but it seems to follow the format of the influenza pandemic. Do you see a lot of obituaries or other individual, other writings or sources that you know don't say yes, this was the influenza pandemic, but this was just you know the, their denial because that's the problem with a lot of people had with the influenza pandemic. Afterwards, it was denial. It didn't happen. They didn't want to talk about it. Do you see any records of this as being a pattern? What I see is you know maybe an effort to just the whole horribleness of the Great War, as they called it, and then to have the pandemic put upon it is to try to find ways to isolate yourself from both of those events and n not really uh, pay as much, uh, I, I don't want to use the word attention, that's not the word I want, it, Pay as, give as much credence to that being a factor. And, and yet, at least of deaths that are recorded in that period, you know, it won't say mysterious illness in the 1918 period that I, sep, late September through uh, January and, and even into, you know, January of 2020, you're still seeing, or March of 2020, still seeing some people die of the H1N1 strain. Uh, so at least at the time, it was usually attributed to that. It's sometimes in the memory of the survivors who, you know, choose to maybe attribute it to some other case. But when I look at, you know, deaths that occur in that period, 19, um, it, 
October 1, 1918 to especially December 31, 1918, uh, if it says, you know, they died of a respiratory illness, it's like that was influenza. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Brett. So we've discussed how this really starts to um, take hold in the uh, military camps. Was the government willing to undertake any mitigations there, or did they see it as just something that would hinder the war effort? Since they didn't know exactly when the war was going to end, though it was starting to turn by September of 1918, and then does end on November 11th, 1918, so 11-11, uh, 1918 is Armistice Day. Uh, there is then, you know, a lockdown at Camp Dodge for a period where people aren't coming in and out, but again, there's so many people there, or, or at least only necessary, you know, uh, what, uh, you know, might have been called the uh, critical personnel or the essential workers of, of the time coming back and forth. But so you were still getting small vectors of spread, uh, even out of the military bases. And you know, again, because it affected young, healthy people uh, equally as, as much as uh, or more so, in fact, than, than some older uh, populations, even those, you know, they weren't hard lockdowns. There's still some coming and going, uh, but you didn't have quite the troop movement that you did uh, from, you know, October uh, that to November that you had in the summer uh, to send for that last push to end the war. So uh, I think to just, you know, draw that to a close, uh, the military would, would did impose, you know, some uh, lockdowns on the on the camps, but there were still always small vectors of spread. It wasn't a hard, hard, hard lockdown. Okay. Terry. Yeah, um, I'd like to go back. Also, talk about Camp Dodge too. What records exist today of the fate of the Camp Dodge soldiers, and were there any rumors that circulated uh, during that time period? Uh, what do you mean by rumors? Uh, to clarify that, mass so I make sure to answer. Mass graves or mass graves or what happened to the soldiers? You know who died oh, there. And yeah, no, they the U.S. Army kept really good records, and so uh, Mike Vote is the curator at the Iowa Gold Star Military Museum that is based at Camp Dodge, and he has uh, access to a lot of the records of soldiers there. And actually, the Historical Society, if you're looking at it from an Iowa standpoint, uh, it, thinking we were never going to be in a war that big again, uh, Edgar Harlan, uh, who would be my predecessor, uh, he was the state curator at the time. The, the, historical, the historical department is what was in Des Moines. Historical Society was in Iowa City. So the Des Moines Historical Department with Edgar Harlan, he wanted to collect a photograph of every Iowan who died during the war. And in looking at our uh, spreadsheet that we have, and it's publicly accessible, uh, if I can figure out a way, I'll share it with, with uh, 
the station and, and you guys can get it out. But you can sort by county and you can sort by date as well. And you can see who dies when. And so we can give it if they died of disease in that period of uh, September 15th to December 1st or December 31st, and they died of disease stateside or overseas, it's like, oh, you can almost bet that was influenza. So I haven't seen any cover-ups or any ideas that, um, and I think Mike would agree with me on that, Mike Vogt, the curator at Gold Star Museum, is we have good records of Iowa soldiers, and I think the federal government didn't try to cover anything up. I mean, that that research and the record-keeping that was kept uh, was was pretty it was a period too and, and I'm going to draw this point to a close it was a period where creating systems was important and so having a system of making sure that you were keeping track of things uh, either who died or who came and who who went uh, it, there's a, you know, a an analysis a, a type of uh, thought called Taylorism that that says we need to analyze everything and this is when it was at, close to its peak so uh, they kept good records. Okay, uh, it is customary for our guests to have the last word on the show. Leo, why do you think knowing about the great influenza pandemic uh, effects in Iowa is relevant in today's world? Sure, the things I think of when I think about the 1918 pandemic is that, uh, you know, nature will do things that are going to surprise us. And so we have, you know, advanced medical uh, research, and yet something is going to happen in 50 years and 100 years that's going to disrupt our lives and, uh, you know, you want to give people the benefit of the doubt that we're going to act in good faith and that the I, I think as Iowans, uh, Midwesterners tend to try to pay attention to uh, how research is done and what the science says. And so uh, to try to act in the best interest of everyone, uh, that's part of what helped people through that 1918 stage not to and, and and you know i understand the tension between individual liberty and the common good and that's been a tension in our country from uh its founding uh is is to say maybe uh you know giving up something so that everybody benefits might be good for our country and that's a tension that we we should keep in mind and it's good to explore and debate but know that nature's always going to throw something at us. And uh, there are things that there are aspects of that that give us perspective and to keep looking at the, the stories from the past can help us uh, have a more nuanced understanding of how to make things better as, as we move forward. We would like to thank our guest for the 451st show, Leo Landis, curator, State Historical Society of Iowa, who talked with us about Iowa and the great influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1920. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search 
Click on the first icon and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Google Podcast. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.